You may be seated. All right, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22 is where we find ourselves this morning. So if you are gathering with us for the first time or have not been with us in a while, um, I want to take a moment to say, first, I'm glad you're here, but where we find ourselves is in a series that we have continued to walk right through the book of Genesis. Uh, So it is my privilege to pick up where Pastor Aaron was last week. Um, As you're you're turning there in your Bibles, uh, I will say if you do not have a Bible, uh, we would love to give you one. We have Bibles available for just this purpose. Uh, And uh, come find me or one of the elders after our service, and we would love to, to get you a copy of God's Word. But as we find ourselves here in Genesis 28, we find ourselves at a place in this story where we have already seen multiple patriarchs, and multiple patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob now. Now we find Jacob, who is, is truly on the run. He is running, though, with God. He is running in a way that would not be expected. So if you would, please look with me at your word, and we hear from God's holy, inspired, and errant, and true word for us today. Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would illumine our hearts and illumine this word that is not my words, but it is your word that we need to hear today. So Father, would you work in and through us and in the lives of your people, and would your spirit be at work even now, helping us to understand this written word? We love you, Father, and ask this in your name through Jesus. Amen. 
All right, so before I get too much further, born to run. You might look at this and say, born to run. I feel like I've heard those phrases sometime. I've heard those three words at some point. Well, for me, that actually brings up the idea of, of an album of Bruce Springsteen. And I know that's a little before my time, but it's actually not too much before my time. And that I walk through this and I say, that brings up a story for me, a time in my life where I had an opportunity to feel like I was running. So my brother, who is a few years older than me, very cool, much cooler older brother than I am, he would take me to, to swim meets and golf practice, and I particularly remember going to golf practice and listening to this album by Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run. Now here's the deal, we're, we're talking really cool. 1980s blazer, no muffler, rust everywhere, a canoe rack that was welded onto the top so that you could do pull-ups on it. I mean, it was cool. It was really cool to a, a, a teen boy riding around with his brother. And it felt like, as we listened to this song, as we listened to many other classic rock albums, that we were born to run. Albeit we had permission from my mother to go to a place as benign and kind and simple as golf practice or swimming lessons. Here we were pulling up in this rusty, loud vehicle, and it felt like we were running and had freedom. We had joy. Now we find ourselves in a story where Jacob does not have much of that joy, but he is certainly running. He is certainly in a place where, as we talked about in prior weeks, he's running for fear of his life. He's running because his brother wants to kill him. He's running because there is something that is causing him to do so, and that God has promised a covenant blessing. Now his, his father, his earthly father, has blessed him as well. But we find ourselves here in this passage where he is truly fleeing. He is running, not from a place of joy, but arguably from a place of fear. Now many of you may find yourself in that place of fear this morning. There may be uncertainties or concerns, or problems that you have that I believe that this passage and learning about Jacob today will help us. Now, you might be in a place of joy, and praise God for that too. But God meets us in his word. He'll teach us and instruct us from his word. He will feed us from his word today. He will show up in ways and, and, and help us when we need physical provision, provisions, when we need spiritual provisions, when we need to be reminded of his covenant, God will show up and meet us. That's really my hope for us today. My purpose and hope really for each and every one of us is that you will see that God is providing for you. And you're going to delight to hear from him in accordance with his plan. Not your will, but his be done. Now, in relation to that, you're going to have uh, three points before you in the bulletin. I think it's going to be helpful as we go to, to see these points. They come straight from our text. But our first point is this, that God is going to provide when we're without the basics. Our second truth is this, that God is going to call us to honor him with what we have. And our third point is this, that God delights in hearing our requests and petitions now, here's the exciting thing as we walk through this. This is a theme that is all over scriptures. And as we talked about already, we are, uh, this week, we had VBS. 
So there are some in this room who know that we were in VBS and that we had a time in VBS. And I wouldn't always at this point in an introduction of a sermon pull in another passage. But this week we are walking through the book of Esther. So as we were walking through the book of Esther, as we were hearing and seeing from God in this book of Esther, we were talking about the reality of a hidden hero. That there was a hidden hero in the book of Esther. That there's a hidden hero in this passage before us in Genesis 28. That it's not Jacob, it's not Esther. As we talked and looked for clues this week, it's not Moses. Our hidden hero today is God. God is the hero of the story. God is the hero of all of our lives, that he is the one who is working. Now again, there may be things that are bleak in your life, that are frustrating, that are concerning. But I promise you, for this purpose that I have before us, that God is providing for you, that he is delighting to hear from you, and he delights to give to you in accordance with his plan. Just as he did for Esther, just as he did for Jacob, just as he did for Isaac and Abraham before that, he's doing that for us today. So here we are with a, with, with, with a son of Abraham, with, with Jacob here, that we're going to get into our story and we're going to walk through our passage today that I think it would be important for us at this point to open our words and to look and see what it is that we see. So our first point for us, this first point that I already laid out for us, that this reality that God does provide and give provision for us, you're going to see this from verses 10 through 17. Now I think it's important when we're opening God's word to, to not have all the points. I think it's good for us to write down things as we go. So I'm actually, in related to this point, going to bring three aspects to the text today. There are going to be three aspects that I think that are important from verses 10 through 17 for you to see. Now, Jacob truly is here in this situation. He's in a place where he does not have the provision of his earthly father. He does not have the provision that we would expect to see in this moment in verses 10 and 11. If you look in your Bibles, you're going to see this. He's what? He's running. He's heading towards Haran. He's left Beersheba, and he is going to a certain place, and he stayed the night. Now, here's the important thing that we see. God is actually going to, this is our first fact, our first aspect. He is going to provide even when the earthly father of Jacob does not provide. God is going to meet him and provide for him physically and meet him in this place. How is it that he's going to provide for him? How is it that he's going to meet him? Well, in this situation, he's going to provide for him in a dream. He's going to give him a dream and walk through it in such a way. Now, our promise that we've continued to lay out and walk through the book of Genesis is this, that God is truly in the physical provisions that we see all throughout history, that he's in the physical provisions in the book of Genesis, he's in the physical provisions of our lives, and that he does not do anything haphazardly or in a way that is unexpected. So as we see this, though, here's, here's the reality that he has received this blessing we just had earlier in chapter 28, that he's received this blessing, that now God has confirmed these things. He has stolen his brother's blessing, is where we find ourselves at today. But it's confirmed by his father. His father actually, before sending him out, says, I, I'm going to bless you. And he blesses him here in the first part of chapter 28. But he's not sent out with much. He's not sent out with physical provisions. He's not sent out with, with, with much to, for this journey. And I think that's a really important thing. Commentators spill a lot of ink here, and they debate as to whether this is because there is a need to trust God, and that there is an aspect of needing to trust God, or if it is just truly that he is fearing for his life. So in his haste, he left without physical provisions. 
Now, this journey that he's going on, it's important for us to get a little bit of context. This is over a 500-mile journey. He's left without much physical provision. And it's not like today where if we were to go 500 miles and to head for Denver or to head for uh, Chicago, that we could stop at Subway and Burger King and lots of places along our journey. No, he does not have that opportunity. And in many ways, he's actually traveling through deserts and places that does not have some of the opportunities for provision that would be afforded. Actually, it's important for us to consider and look back just a few chapters earlier in Genesis 24, what we actually see of Jacob's father. That there was an instance in a situation and a place where he had gone to get a wife. We heard about that a few months ago, and we walked through that passage, uh, and we walked through that as the customs of that day, as the time that there was. He went out, and he went out with camels and provisions and greatness. He looked rich. Now, here's the thing. Jacob has that same provision. He has that same blessing from God. He has that physical, uh, those physical resources in his, uh, his lineage because he is part of the line, but he is not sent out with this in such a way so that he is being forced to trust God. I believe that that is the more accurate and better reading that he is being forced to see and to trust God in this place so that he is not going to see, okay, my conniving, my will, my abilities are going to make me and get me right with God. In fact, actually what we see is the exact opposite is because he has nothing, he's probably in this place of fear. He's gone about 30 or 40 miles as we actually know from the text. So he's probably gone about one day. If you think about going several miles an hour and he's walking to this place, He's about a day's journey out. And the text actually seems to imply that he really is a day out. And he lies down, and he's in this place, and he puts a, a rock underneath his head. And that would have been common in those days to put a rock or something like this. It's not like today when we travel with our own My Perfect Pillows or anything like that. A rock would have been a common thing for him at this point, but we see that here there's a second aspect that's a really important thing as we walk through this text. That here he is, he lies down for sleep. And God is faithful to keep his covenant. Hear that. That's our second aspect related to our first truth, that God is faithful to keep his covenant. We're going to see that here in verses 12 through 15 in this physical provision of a dream that God is going to remind him and show him and teach him that he is actually keeping the covenant. So God is truly going to provide in this way, and he's going to meet him in this place. And there's a lot of people that have spent a lot of time talking about these verses in particular. Uh, and, and we see this called the, the dream of Bethel, or Bethel, or we see this in pl- or other places. People call this Jacob's Ladder. And a lot of people talk about what this is and Jacob's Ladder and what is intended by this passage. And I think it's really important for us to actually see the important thing is not Jacob, it's not the angels, But actually, it's important for us to see God is at work in this passage, that God is preeminent over all things, that he is working over all things, and that actually in verses 13 and 14, the covenant is echoed. So look with me at your Bibles. Look at 13 and 14. Behold, the Lord stood above, this is the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. So he has two things there. He says, one, I am the Lord. Two, I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now, this is not some new thing. It's not newfangled. It's actually it's a restatement, and it's a, it's a reiteration of the promises of the covenant that God has perfectly kept that we actually see in places like Genesis 12, uh, 13, 17, 18, 
uh, and 22. I'm thinking back to ordination exams and preparation for them. But looking through that, we say there's places that are restatements here that is going on that God is confirming the covenant now to Jacob. He confirmed it to his father. He confirmed it to his mother. He has given these signs to him. Now he is showing up not on the terms of what Jacob wants. He's coming in and meeting him and coming into a dream and reminding him, hey, Jacob, it's not about you. I am the covenant-keeping God, and I am going to meet you here in this place. I am the Lord, it says. I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now, what's amazing, though, as Jacob is here and is likely doubting many things, that the Lord is actually coming and meeting him in the midst of his doubt that he's promising here that he's going to meet his physical provisions he has given a dream but he is promising that he's going to meet his physical provisions because if he is going to keep the covenant what has to happen he has to have family he doesn't have family yet he's not married he does not have a wife he is actually on the run away from Beersheba and from his father's tent as his father is dying Things look incredibly bleak at this moment. But what we actually see very powerfully is this, that God is showing up and meeting him in his ways, not on Jacob's terms. It's a very powerful thing that I think if we look at this, it's actually important for us to see our third aspect related to our first truth. We're going to see in verse 16 and 17 actually a, a response that starts to happen in Jacob. That he hasn't really had a response like this yet. That actually he's done everything by his own will. He's done everything by his own strength up to here. He's stolen the birthrights by putting, on, uh, putting skin on a, a, of an animal and, and stealing his brother's birthright. But now what does he say in 16 and 17? Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. For the first time, Jacob is really beginning to turn his thoughts towards God. Why? Because God came and showed him the covenant. That God was merciful enough to remind him and show him, in verses 12 through 15, that he's in charge. There's this covenant language that he's meeting even as he's on the run from his brother and things look quite bleak. He actually even goes into this and says, here, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He's saying this in such a way that I believe he's actually probably speaking about the physical nature of the land that he's in and seeing, okay, I need to come back here. There's something about this in which God is going to meet me in this place, that God is going to provide for me in this place. The text is continuing and showing for us. So he's been met here in the middle of the night, that God has provided for him in the middle of the night with this dream and showing him that he is providing for him in a way that it is that he is now needing to turn his worship. That actually brings us to our second point because we start to see as Jacob shifts his worship that there's something in verses 18 and 19 for us that is true of Jacob, that is true of this text that we start to see. God calls us to honor him with what we have. I think it's a really important truth that we actually see for us as it was true for Jacob. Now he actually, at this point, what does he do when he wakes up? Verse 18 and 19 says this. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Again, he didn't have the physical provisions he should have been sent off with to go find a wife. He wasn't sent with the camels or in our our context, you know, a, a very expensive Corvette to say, hey, look at me, I've got everything going on. He is sent out with basically the skin on his back. He likely had a little bit of food, although the text doesn't say too much. It does say here he had oil. 
And so whether he had to go to another town or whether it was that he left on his journey with just oil and a few basic provisions, the text does not say. But based on where he was at, it was most likely that he had a little bit of provision with him. He's in a desert. He's not far from home. But either way, the important thing is that he is now beginning to worship God in a way that is consistent with belief. Now, something's powerful, though, verses 18 and 19, though, the way that he's worshiping is actually different than a lot of commentators would say he should have built an altar. He should have done this in such a way that the Israelites were called to make an altar. And actually, we see elsewhere and later on, and I believe it's Deuteronomy 16, that, that we are called to not make pillars, that we're not called to do exactly what it is he's doing. However, what is he doing with innocent beginning seeds of faith? He is calling out to God with what he had. And he's saying, hey, I want to make a rock of remembrance. I want to honor God. I had an encounter with God last night. And now I want to, in this morning, follow through so that people after me can worship and understand. Now, I think there's a lot here because actually in the night, he had a word that came from God. And he said, how awesome is God? How awesome is this place? But here we have a few hours later, what he then follows up and does is he actually worships further. There's an invitation for each and every one of us to remember that when God comes and meets us and shows us in and through his word, many times as we're reading it, or shows up on a Sunday morning as, as he is, is alive and, and we start to understand and see things and we say, how awesome is God? Yep, he's in this place. But then what do we sometimes do? We sometimes turn back towards ourselves towards our own ways and just say, well, that was amazing, and then go on and carry about our work. There's an invitation here for each and every one of us to look at this and see that a dream in the middle of the night has now come, and now he has a response. That there's a responsibility and an action of what he is carrying out through his actions by getting up early in the morning. Now, I'm not an early morning person. I'm not going to get up and do a lot of the things early in the morning. My wife might. We do have a, a little boy who is a little over a year old, and so at five in the morning, he likes to kind of get his motor going. But we look at this and we say, what is it that he's inviting and calling us to do, that there's a, a reality that with our habits and in the mornings that we're needing to get up and to look at what it is that God has done. He took the very stone that was under his head, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. Now, Presbyterian scholar Desmond Alexander suggests that he would have been prone to make this here as an altar, and it really would have been the most appropriate thing. But I actually think uh, Calvin gets it a little better, and that Calvin understands and, and gets what's going on, and understanding that this posture of Jacob's heart is shifting and taking. So therefore, Calvin says this, Jacob raised a monument and gave a name to this place so that it would transmit a memorial of his gratitude to his posterity that his family that will come after him will receive the signal and benefit that God is worthy to be celebrated in all ages. Now Calvin is stating, and I think our passage is stating for us, that what is actually going on here is that there's a remembrance for the people of God to look at this and to see that he is meeting them in this place, that this place that he's truly meeting them is physically close to where uh, his family is. 30 or 40 miles, about a day's journey. As he's setting out on this journey, God is reminding him through a dream, and now Jacob is in turn with his actions saying, I see what you've done, God. I'm going to honor you with what I have. It's an invitation for us to do that as well, 
for us to turn our actions and our responses towards the living God. As we look at this, though, I think that this is an important thing for us to actually continue and look. If we look at this in our, uh, if you're looking at the ESV Bible, verses 18 through 22 are, are essentially one paragraph and there's one unit, but I, I've broken it up because I think there's two truths uh, in this passage, in this paragraph there. And I'm going to start to unpack our, our, our third truth, which is this. Now that God delights in hearing our requests in prayer. You might look at this, you might scratch your head because you go, well, Billy, isn't there a vow that is here? How is that different? Or what is it that is being done with a vow versus that of prayer? Now, I will admit that there is something here that is said that is important for us to look at vows. And actually, uh, we are, are instructed, actually, on, on what ch- in chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, of when and how and in what ways we should take vows. This would have been, uh, at this point, actually, I believe this is our first recorded instance in the scriptures of a vow. That being said, we are instructed, and we do see vows elsewhere, of what it is and when it is that Christians should take vows. I took a vow when I became a minister of the gospel. We take vows when we are going to stand uh, before God and make a covenant promise of marriage. That there are vows that we walk through, and in ways that we see a vow that is to actually happen and walk out. But what is a vow? A vow is saying, God, would you work, would you, in accordance with your will, do the things that you have already promised to do? That you will work out for your people in a way that is, it is not conditional, but it is true to his character, his nature, his goodness for his people. And so a vow is saying, hey, God, if this is something that you, know, that you have called us to do, I am going to align my words with what you have already stated you're going to do. There's nothing conditional about this. And actually, if you look at the passage, there's a lot of people that believe that there is something conditional in this. I spent a lot of time here looking at this, and I I am convinced, actually, as the week went by, that this is not a conditional statement. Now, I say this because here's the thing. If we look at the ESV, it does say this. "If If God will be with me and keep me in the way that I go... And then he gives a stack of, it sounds like conditions, and then he gets to verse 22 and finishes off. Then the Lord will be my God. Sounds like if you do these things, God, then I will be faithful to you. Now what's actually happening is a restatement of the dream that he received the prior night. That God said, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to keep the covenant. I'm going to do these things for you, Jacob. And what did Jacob say? Wow, how awesome is this? God is in this place. There's an invitation that we actually see now. It's not a conditional. That what he's actually saying, he's, he's through this vow doing something that I think is the nature of prayer. He's saying in accordance with your will and what you revealed to me just last night, would you do these things, God? I know you're a covenant-keeping God. I know you're about the protection of your people that you are going to take care of these things. And he delights to hear these requests, and he actually has a threefold request, I think, really in kind of ways, in, in many ways. He asks for physical covering. He asks for clothing in verse 20. Then in verse 21, he asks for God to truly keep the covenant that God said he's going to keep, that God's confirmed again and again and again to his family and now to Jacob. And three... Then he says, all right, well, in light of this, God, I'm going to promise to return the Lord these tithes, a tenth, a tenth that I'm going to give to. Which in reality, since God owns everything, this is God's already that he is asking and saying that I'm going to give, that I'm going to be a part of this giving here in such a way 
that God is at work in this place. Now, this is the very restatement of what it is that we've seen as I already unpacked earlier in the book of Genesis, that it's a restatement and a repackaging of what, of what was already stated to Abraham and to Isaac. Now, Jacob is receiving an understanding from God for the first time, and then is turning his worship to God. He's returning his petitions here in verses 20 through 22 to the very language of what God has already given him. There's an invitation for us, though this is a vow and there's a little bit difference of that of prayer. There's an invitation for us with our prayers to go before God and to bring our requests for that of provision, of physical things, for that of God to keep his covenant, and for God to show up and to give to him what is God's anyways. He's inviting and telling us that in prayer, we are to take this very posture, to take this very attitude that is here that God is inviting us to do as well, as we see from Jacob. Now, there's incredible, incredible promises that we actually see from this, that these words actually in many ways are just promising what we actually saw in Genesis 3.15, that the, the, the head of the serpent would be crushed. God is continuing to say, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to do it. It's, it is done. It's good as done because my covenant is good. I'm, I'm, I'm good for it, God is saying here. This is not about the men of Israel. This is not about Jacob being faithful. It's about God being faithful to his covenant family that he is keeping the promises here. We actually see in this that there is a very real promise of that which is going to be done in certainty and that we now even have in its fulfillment as Christians this side of Christ that we are certain that it is now done. There is one who is coming who is going to save all of Israel. There's one who's coming, and he's saying, Hey, Jacob, it is not about you by the, the, the skin of your teeth and by your bootstraps getting enough to make this happen. And I'm going to do it. I confirmed it last night, and now your words are beginning to align with these things. Now, Jacob is not perfectly and authentically having deep faith. We actually see what's going on is weak faith. It's not, it's not proper faith. But a few chapters later, in chapter 32, we begin to see something really powerful where Jacob actually wrestles with God, and we see this picture in 32. He, he, he says, I, I'm not going to let go until you release me. So that's when I really believe that we start to see deeper faith. But there's nuggets and kernels here of faith that God is giving to Jacob as he is going out on this journey, this long journey of 500 miles plus, to then try to get a wife without provisions and to remember and be reminded that God is keeping the covenant and will call him back to this place of his fathers, that he will call him back to this place. When the odds looked long for Jacob, it was certain that the covenant was going to be kept. Now, when the odds look long for us, it is certain that God is going to keep his covenant. He keeps his covenant to his people. He is faithful to his people. He has done this work in such a way that we can see it in places like this through the life of Jacob and through the life of our patriarchs that Jacob is not a great, perfect keeper of the law. Actually, it's a beautiful thing that he doesn't keep these things perfectly because it's a reminder for us not of the perfection of Jacob or the perfection of Isaac or the perfection of Abraham, but instead it's actually the reality that all of these men are faulty and failures and are not good enough to keep things on their own. They cannot make it happen. God is at work in making it happen and will do this work for them. 
and he'll do the work for you. If and when, by faith, you put your trust in him. If and when, you say, God, I know that you've kept the covenant. Whatever it is I'm walking through today, I know that you're going to meet me in this place. I think it's the powerful thing as we walk through this, that as we, we, we begin to see what it is that God is doing for his people, we see that he's been incredibly generous. Not just in giving the covenant, but in stating it to them again and again and again when they become wayward. That he gives dreams in the middle of the night. That he gives it to his mother. That he gives it to his father, who is reluctant, but gives him a blessing. And we're going to see all throughout the book of Genesis this continual faithfulness of a sovereign God who is a king who is reigning over us, who is supreme. Just as he was here in Genesis, he's supreme and has authority over our lives as well. So I think here's the powerful thing. As we walk through this and we look at this, we begin to see these things. That yes, there's a very real amount of reality of of provision that comes in this, this passage. And there's a lot that we need to see. Because there's provision that came for Jacob. So it's important for us to look at that with the truths that we've seen this morning and the realities of who God is and what he's done. He took care of Jacob's physical needs. He met him and took care of the physical needs of that day. Jacob didn't think he needed a dream and a confirmation of the Lord, but he met his physical needs. And then Jacob actually said, hey, would you take care of my, my physical provisions of that of clothing and food later on in this passage as well? God meets him there. God takes care of that. Thing two, the second truth, that God then said, I want you to honor me with what you have. Because God is keeping that covenant, that God is faithful to his covenant. That God is going to do the work here in Jacob's life. And that third thing that we see is that there was a vow that he made, that there was an invitation here to come before God. On God's terms. Not on his terms but on the terms that God had set in relation to the covenant that he had given to his people. And I think there's a lot in here with these three things that we see of his life that we can apply and look at in our lives as well. And here's the first thing. God is going to take care of your day-to-day needs. He's going to meet you and take care of your provisions, and not in a way of that of, uh, of you name it and claim it. But he's going to take care and make sure that you have enough to get you to eternity. He's going to make sure that you have enough that he will hold you fast with the day-to-day needs and provisions you have. You maybe have a lot or maybe you have a little, but God is with you. And it may look confusing. It may look frustrating. You might find yourself like Jacob saying, I don't get it. I'm going out on this long journey. I don't have the provisions. I don't have the camels that dad was sent out with. Nobody sent out with camels. But God is going to meet you, and he's going to take care of things. He cares so much about each and every one of our hearts. He then did a second thing. He reminded you he's going to keep his covenant to you. That if and when by faith he has granted you faith, he will keep that for you. Keep that in your life, that he will protect you. He is a covenant-keeping God. Just as he was for our patriarchs in Genesis, he is for us as well. Now, there's a third thing here. It's a powerful thing. This is an invitation for each of us to bring our request to God. So look at this passage and consider this and see. I'm not encouraging you to make vows, but do bring your prayers and petitions and requests before the living God. Not on your terms. Bring them in accordance with his will. 
bring him in accordance with his word. Which is word made flesh as the living Christ Jesus, but his word is also that which is right here in front of you. So for you to be people who are bringing things in accordance with his will, you need to be people of the book. You need to be people who understand his word and love his truths and feast on the truths of his scripture so that you can be reminded on those moments that he's a covenant-keeping God. And then turn your prayers and requests in accord with what it is that he said to do. Actually, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, it's thy will be done on earth as in heaven. So if we think about that, we pray those prayers, we bring those prayers before him, there's an invitation for us to do the very thing that Jacob is doing, to see that God has met us. Instead of just saying, yep, and going back to our very lives, to remember and look to his word, which is that true stone, that true rock of remembrance, that that Jesus is the one who has met us, that he is the cornerstone that we build our lives upon, that he is the one who meets us in these places. And so we look at this and we look into place here in Genesis 28 and we know that it's pointing to and looking to the reality for the Jewish people that there is a Savior who is coming. That there is a Savior that they desperately need. And we as Christians know and believe and see through his word that that Savior has come. He has confirmed the promises. He's confirmed the prophecies of the things of the Old Testament. That Jesus came and lived a life that we could not live. He died a death that we deserve. And he rose again from the dead, showing that he holds the keys over death and sin. Thanks be to God. That's the reality of what we're actually seeing here in Genesis 28. This reality of this provision that a savior of the world is needed. That God is keeping this covenant. That he asks for us to come to him and ask for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That he delights in making his glory known. He has shared this joy with us so that in turn we can share the delights and the joys of that relationship that we have been given by him now and into eternity. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for keeping the covenant of grace to us and extending to us that we're so undeserving of. We thank you for Jacob Thank you for the story of your people and that we are privileged to walk through it today. Father, I ask that you would show us how you're meeting us here in the physical provisions of this day. And Father, I ask that you would meet physical provisions in this room that feel hard, that feel like we are alone. Would you remind us that you will hold us fast until the very end? That the provisions of this day have been met and purchased by Christ and then applied to us. Father, would you help us to think about to meditate on and read the truths of your word that we've both heard this morning and each morning of our lives. You show us new mercies. Apply them to our lives. We ask this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.